We're hot. We're fun. We're crying. But we're trying. We've got looks. We've got books. Also, we're sad. Sad, sad girls, girls who read. Bonnie, we are so excited to have you. Sad Girls Who Read, our first book is Lessons in Chemistry, and we are fortunate enough to have gotten the author of this fantastic book. Thank you for coming on. Anything you want to say before we jump in? Yeah, I want to say thanks for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. I think the Sad Girls Reading Book Club, is that what it's called? Yes. I have to say, I think it was the best name for a book club I've ever heard. <laughs> Thank you. We are Sad Girls, and maybe you are as well. We'll find out. <laughs> I can't wait to find out. So first question for you is reading your author's bio, it seems like you've had a lot of different careers thus far. So how did this book come to fruition? Like, have you been writing your whole life? Has it been in you your whole life? Well, I mean, actually, I've had sort of the same career. I'm a copywriter, but I've worked in a lot of different industries. But I've been writing my whole life. I wrote my very first book when I was five. It was a page long. And my daughters discovered it in our basement and mocked me uh, for hours on end because it's so bad. And it had a beginning, a middle, and the end, but it was all on one page. And naturally, it was about a princess. And then I wrote another book when I was 12, and that was a real book. And my librarian at school put it in the school library, and then no one ever checked it out. I know that because I checked every day to see if rejection at a young age made you stronger. You know, it's good training, right? And then I wrote another, I wrote half a book and that one had Elizabeth Zott in it, but it was only, she was only in there for three sentences. And then I never finished that book. Then I wrote another book that never got picked up by an agent. And then I wrote Lessons in Chemistry and Lessons in Chemistry. Elizabeth Zott came zooming back to me one day at work. And so that's where she came from. She was in a bad mood. Wow. So I by <laughs> We we have a saying in our house now. We say Elizabeth's out for president. Oh, all the time. All this honestly. <laughs> who would make a better president? Than Elizabeth. But we also say Bonnie for president. We say Bonnie for president. We, we say this oh, you wouldn't want that. every day. <laughs> no, we we're we're here for it. We need a powerful woman as our president. Okay. Wow. So you've been writing your entire life. Tell us about the, I guess the last book that you said didn't get picked up by an agent. Did that deter you at all? Or did it just motivate you more to keep writing? It did deter me. It was really depressing. Um, That's why I really relate to the Sad Girls Club, because when you get that many rejections for work that you've really slaved over, and it's your personal work, then you can't help but take it personally. You're not supposed to, but you do. do. Yeah, of course. And so I grieved a little bit. No, I grieved a lot for (laughs) six or nine months. And then one day there I was at work and I'd had a really bad day. I experienced some pretty major sexism in a meeting and I was just pissed off. And I went back to my desk and I wrote the first chapter of Lessons in Chemistry. So there you have it. Okay. Anger is actually good for you. Take your broken heart, turn it into art. There we go. Oh my God, that's That's exactly it. I totally relate to the rejection piece as an actor. Like you're rejected truly a hundred times a day and you put so much into prepping each role and you get so close and then it's like, nope, you actually, you did not. So it's nice to hear that you as like a literary icon also faced rejection. That's so inspiring. I think, you know, with my job also, I think as a copywriter, you get used to presenting your ideas and then people going, 
I don't like it. That doesn't make sense. But it makes so much sense to you and that it's hard not to take that personally. You know, copywriters and also designers have portfolios of all the work that was good, that they knew was good, that was rejected. And when I used to go and try to get another job, I would take the rejection portfolio because that was my best work. And then all the other designers and writers would go, oh, yeah. That is so much better. And then we would bond over rejection. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Do you feel like each rejection, this sounds corny, but led you to writing this book? I think rejection is such a part of life. I think for everyone, you just have to not let it get you down. I mean, it does. There's no question about it, but it can't rule you. It Mm -hmm. cannot deter you or stop you. And if it does, then it won. And I don't want rejection to win. I mean, these people who are making the decisions, they're not God. They make mistakes. So I think it's really important if you can find it in your soul, keep going. I love that. Okay. So you were experiencing sexism in the office that led to you writing this first chapter. We have to ask how much of this book, if any, was based on your real life. You know, the funny thing is I'm not a chemist. And I absolutely hate to cook. Um, I would believe you're a chemist. I like was convinced you were a chemist. Oh, yeah. I don't know why. Oh, that's so funny. Well, you know, copywriters never write what they know. So for me to go, okay, I'll make her a chemist and I'll, I'll have her do a TV cooking show, which I never watch. I don't watch TV cooking shows. So wow. yeah, when I'd explain to people what I was doing, they go, yeah, you're not a scientist and you you cook very poorly. I I know, I know, but I can write about it. You get to create, you know, your own world. So for me, it was great. So not too much of me is really in the book. Elizabeth Zott for me was the role model that I needed right then. So that's what I wrote. I love that you say that because that is what struck, I think both of us so much. I was talking to my therapist yesterday and I said, this book made me feel so validated. I needed this. I needed Elizabeth. I needed Bonnie to write this. I felt validated, vindicated, if that's a word, in so many ways. I'm glad to hear that. You know, I hear from a lot of male readers, too. They're like, yes, (laughs) I I resonate with her, too. I've been put down and I've been shoved aside and I've been rejected. It's so funny to hear from all these people. It's such a universal experience, of course. So, you know, also hearing from people all, all over the world, how they feel about, you know, thank God she stood up for all of us. So what is one of your favorite qualities in Elizabeth? And do you relate? Do, yeah. Do you relate to her in any ways? The quality I love the most is she has integrity. She's mm-hmm. a, she's a rationalist. Mm-hmm. She doesn't accept things that aren't factual. She refuses to conform to what society says she has to be. And she doesn't think anyone should do that. And part of her, she's a little naive. She doesn't understand really why anyone would give in to these bad ideas that are ruling our politics and everything else. So she just goes, yeah, not, not me. I'm out. I'm not, I won't do that. Um, but she has to deal with the consequences of others who do follow those, <laughs> those norms. Are you, I don't know math very well. So (laughs) when did you grow up? Like, are you a similar age to Elizabeth? No, I'm a similar age to to Madeline. Actually, she's a little older than me. So this was my mom's generation. I see. When I started writing it that day, I felt like I needed reassurance that we'd move forward as women in society. Mm -hmm. Because that day, I was pretty sure that nothing had changed. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I want to compare and contrast the two eras. And I think most of the feedback I get is, yeah, things haven't changed nearly enough. Um, but the other the other thing is that I wanted to really take a look at that generation of women 
because that was one of the most depressed generation of women in American history. They were told they were average. They all had to stay home and cook and clean. And they were told their lives were easy and they had to give up any kind of idea of, you know, having a life outside the home. Mm. And when I look back, I think about how we just assumed all the moms stayed at home because that's what they did. And when we were growing up, we'd say, I'm not doing that. I don't want that. Yeah. They didn't have a choice. So, you know, it wasn't a great time for women in America. And I think reading this book was so, I mean, it was interesting to read about what happened 50 years ago, 60 years ago, but I think what touched me so much is what you just spoke to things have changed, but I don't think things have changed nearly enough. Like if we're looking at sexual assault in the workplace, if we're looking at blatant sexism in the workplace, or the pay gap. Yeah. It, it made me so sad to read this and think, wait, this was based 50, 60 years ago, but I still relate to so much of this. Yeah. And you know, that's why that day in the office, I just thought, why is this still going on? Why is this acceptable behavior? So that's why Elizabeth Zott came to life because she will not accept unacceptable behavior. And I (laughs) love, I love that she she is like unwavering Mm -hmm. in, in being her true self. That really stuck out to me. Like the men are like, smile, be cute, be sexy, smile, (laughs) smile. smile." She's like, I'm just not, I'm not smiling. And I was like, yes, (laughs) don't do it. And when she refused for the set to be a certain way. Yeah. yeah. And wanted to wear her like chemist yeah. jacket and said, no, yeah. I'm not going to wear these sexy Ugh, clothes. I love right. Yeah. No, she was really fun to write. You know, it's really fun to write someone who just says no all the time and doesn't really care about the fallout of saying yeah. no. Yeah. Did it heal you to write Elizabeth's character? And in what ways? Well, you know, she goes through so much. Sometimes women are painted as incapable or sensitive or whatever, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, we're strong. Mm -hmm. And I wanted this woman to reflect Mm -hmm. a woman's strength. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, she goes through a lot of stuff. She has terrible things happen to her. Mm -hmm. So when I was writing her, I wanted to see how she could handle the worst of the worst of the worst. And And she does. does. Yeah. Calvin. Calvin. I. I'm so upset about that. Yeah. We're so upset. We got to talk about Calvin. No, but really just a little bit longer. Why why so soon did we kill him? Just to show her strength? Well, really, it was because I knew she would never, ever, if she was with Calvin, she would never, ever, ever be taken seriously. All of her work would go straight under her. So I knew, and you know, when I wrote that, oh, I, my husband was reading it after I wrote it and he goes, I can't believe you killed him. (laughs) I said, yeah, I know he had to go, but it was because, you know, I think in terms of Calvin, what women like about him is that he falls in love with Elizabeth because of her mind. He respects her completely. And I think that, you know, for women in a relationship where there's a man who's not being an, what I call an equalist, who thinks a woman is this way or that way. Calvin doesn't have those thoughts. He doesn't have much experience with women, but he <laughs> does have experience with stupid people getting his way. And he finds Elizabeth and she is definitely not stupid. And so finally he has someone he can talk to about everything except for the things he decides to keep private. Right. And for him, you know, that was a lifesaver. She was a lifesaver because he finally got to grow and be who he wanted to be. He was finally happy. And it was because of her. She's the catalyst of the book. She changes everyone she comes in contact with. 
Right. Including Calvin. Yeah. How did Calvin's storyline come about? Like his life is so, so tragic in every which way, but also so beautiful. How did that come to fruition for you? Well, I think, you know, Calvin was, was very important at work. And so everybody feared him and everybody assumed he held a grudge and everyone assumed all these things. Oh, he must come from money. Same with Elizabeth. She's very beautiful. I made her beautiful for a reason because Mm -hmm. I wanted that to be yet another nail in her coffin of how she'd be treated at work. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's the only way she was going to get on TV anyway, at that, at that age, you know, she would have to be attractive, but what I wanted was everyone's reaction, assuming that they knew these people. They didn't know these people. These people came from horrible backgrounds. Yeah. They they had to ever overcome so much adversity in their lives. And yet we we tend, you know, it's very common for us to tend to see people and say, think we know what's happened to them in their lives. We don't. We don't. And so right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Calvin, Calvin had pretty bad life, but he rose above his circumstances as well. And Elizabeth had to as well. And that's another thing that they had in common. That I was going to say the family piece. One of the chapters that stood out to me the most is when they were talking about family. And I think mm-hmm. Calvin said something like, well, I just assumed that if you had a family, that was really meaningful and really important. And yeah. Elizabeth said something I, I can't remember exactly, but like, no, family can be the source of your pain. Mm-hmm. I related to that so much. And I think that so many people will. We just assume family is blood and family is always the most beautiful thing for you, but they both related in that way. Right. Exactly. You know, I think I have plenty of friends who, you know, have wonderful families. I have a, I have a great family, but I think I I've seen very bad families and I've seen the hurt that's come from those families. And to assume that everybody has a family reunion where they get t-shirts that say, you know, the Johnson reunion, it just doesn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't happen for a lot of us. And, and so I wanted to recognize that I wanted to make people understand that it's also normal not to belong to the family that you were born into. Chosen family forever. That I wrote this down like a million times when mad was doing her i love the name mad by the way her family tree (laughs) and she was like wait and i think wakely said we're more part of the animal kingdom yeah than the plant and i was like yes and it's about chosen family Mm -hmm. and mad has this instinct to go out and find like a father figure and and find harriet as like her aunt like she Mm -hmm. just grabs people in and elizabeth really helped cultivate like this really sweet chosen family and it really touched me especially for someone who didn't want kids I think Elizabeth was a fantastic mother yeah you know I thought it was really interesting I was talking with some women in STEM and they were saying oh you know the only problem we have was that of course she had to have a child and and I said she didn't have a choice back then Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah if you were pregnant you had the child and now, of course, it's come full circle in the United States and many women in many states have no choice again. Mm. But Elizabeth, of course, would, you know, she's strong. She's resilient. She's going to do the best job she can. But she realizes she's not very good at it. 
And so that's where Harriet really has to help her understand what it takes. And Elizabeth influenced Harriet. The fact that Harriet left her husband hated him. Hated him. (laughs) You never see him, but I know I hated him too. But we I feel like we all can picture him now. I can feel it. I can see him. I said it. It, yeah, he doesn't even get to be a human. I wanted to ask about Harriet, but I also wanted to ask about Elizabeth's female coworker, Mm Miss Frask. The way that we were thinking about it is obviously she was awful, but we also talked about in the first episode that we recorded, Miss Frask is also influenced by all of this. So were we so like, did you want the reader to, at the end of the story, find some kind of empathy for Miss Frask because she was also victimized by patriarchy? That's exactly it. Miss Frask had to realize that she was being victimized instead of supporting this patriarchy that had put her in her place time and time again. You know, it was Elizabeth Zott who had to point out she wasn't helping anyone. And since she hated Elizabeth Zott, you know, because she was, Elizabeth Zott was everything she wasn't. For them to finally find this common ground of, oh, we've both been abused, Mm -hmm. brings women together in an unfortunate way. But I really like, you know, her at the end when she's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. And they don't really become, you know, good friends. They become allies. And I think that that's even more. It's I just better. got the chills. It's better. <laughs> yeah. 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 We're still made to believe that all other women are our competition. Well, because when there was only one seat at the table, yeah. especially 60 years ago, Miss Frask was thinking like, well, I want that to be my seat and who could blame her? What she yeah, did was awful. But if yeah. you think about it, like there is so much nuance and gray there. Sure. Her journey, you know, through the book is for me, one of the most interesting because she thinks Elizabeth has chosen very poorly with Calvin Evans. He's unattractive. You'd have to live with that man. You know, why would you do that? Now he's dead. You're free. You can go find someone attractive, you know? And so she's thinking, I'm going to cry. I'm like, we're in love. (laughs) I know. (laughs) She couldn't imagine, you know, falling in love with someone like, like Calvin because he was hard to understand. So Mm -hmm. I I like how she is kind of simple-minded at first or, you know, one-minded, I should say. She's always supporting the male perspective. She's always sucking up to her male superiors. And at the end, no more. (laughs) No more. Yeah. And it brings, it also makes me think about the, what people thought about the relationship went both ways. It was Elizabeth wanted something from Calvin. And then it was also like, Calvin is just here to basically like, excuse my language, but like fuck Elizabeth basically is like, he just wanted to have sex with her. And that wasn't it for either of them. And I think that that dynamic and that perception sometimes of relationships still exists in our world today. Yeah. Yeah, No one could deal with the fact that they were this power couple and they, everyone wanted what they had. So they had to be like, well, something's going on. Something must be off here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They were looking for, for this thing to be bad. And, you know, when Calvin dies and you see the people at the funeral, half of them are happy that he's dead. Oh, competition's gone. And I think that's kind of a very, it's unfortunate, but it's a a human trait. You know, we all do feel uh, very competitive a lot of times with. Of course we do. Yeah. And so, and for wrong reasons and also based on bad assumptions about people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We have to talk about 630. Oh yes. We have to talk about 630. Cause we're big dog people over here. Yes. You have or I, had, I don't want to mess this up, a dog named 99. I have okay. a dog, but 630 was based on my previous dog and her name was Friday. Okay. How did you come up with these names? Tell us everything. Well, Friday was named by my daughters. We got Friday at the 
shelter. It was a really sad story. She was horribly abused. Somebody had burned cigarettes out on her back and her bottom teeth were missing. And oh she had, she, oh, it was horrible. And she had two kinds of mange and she was just probably honestly the ugliest dog in the shelter that day. And my kids gravitated towards her and said, look at this cute dog. And you know, what do you say to your kids? Like, that's not a cute dog. Uh, <laughs> you say that's <laughs> the most beautiful dog in the world, baby. We very, my husband and I were like, we reluctantly took this dog out wow. and took her around and she was very gentle, but also she smelled really horrible. And we assumed at the time it was because she had mange, but it turned out she had that smell her entire life. Oh my God. Friday, my sweet girl. I, love I know, I know. Daughters gravitated toward the ugly dog. That's not a... I feel like that's, yeah. That's, like that says a lot about how you're raising them to be accepting and loving. Like that's, that's on you. Good job. And maybe well, it wasn't about you. the looks. Exactly. I know, but my husband and I are, were out in the parking lot going, what the hell are we doing? Yeah. What um, did we just do? Like, you know, the kids are jumping around. Yay. And then she turned out to be uh, the most, the most empathetic and wise dog we could have possibly gotten. She was really smart. And when we would eat together, you know how dogs lay at your feet, yeah. but not Friday, she would sit there and then she would watch when someone talked, she would watch and then watch and then watch. And we realized that she was learning our words because she would demonstrate it all the time. So, you know, words of toys or things that she would go get to demonstrate she knew exactly what we were talking about, which was really something. And then we were, we were transferred abroad to Switzerland and, and she learned German. I'm not even kidding. Is Friday the smartest dog alive? Okay. So that influenced 630, I'm guessing, teaching the dog so many words. Yeah. Yeah. That was definitely, that came from from real life. I didn't, the only difference is I didn't actively teach Friday words. She showed me that she knew what the words were that, you know, we'd repeated fairly often. I mean, she knew simple things, obviously like dinner and walk and sit, but then she knew very complex things. And then when we moved abroad and she learned German, she passed a dog exam that took an hour that was in German. All the commands were in German. She got a hundred percent. Yeah, so 99 has nothing to do with 630. I named 99 after the TV show Get Smart. That was Agent 99, the smart okay. girl. I can't say adopt, don't shop. I do adopt, but unfortunately, my little dog, I did kind of purchase slash rescue. But I have a rescue pit bull who was also severely abused. Like the owner like poured acid on her sister's back and she has like, they would tape her mouth shut. And I have to say my rescue dog is the kindest most like you just they know that they were rescued and I think that it beats buying any kind of dog I mean obviously that's you're like bear Bear, was coming out like like, talking about him he's like he's like okay but I'm so cute no rescue dogs just know is what I'm trying to say they know that they were rescued and they will give you that back and then some for the rest of their lives and it is so special it is. It really is. I think and even 99, she was a rescue too. She's, she was a racing greyhound and, you know, they keep them in very small cages uh-huh. and uh-huh. yeah, she's not super affectionate, but she's gotten so much better. And now of course she's, she adores us because we give her a lot of treats and a lot of good feedback, but you know, it's great. It's great to know she knows as well, you know, yeah, oh, they just know. God. there's not a lot. I mean, I haven't read a ton of books 
where I see a relationship like Elizabeth and 630. Oh, my goodness. How did you decide to make 630 such a big part of her life? When I started writing it and I realized 630 was going to have these thoughts, I was a little worried because when you put magical realism sort of things into a book, it, you can get some pretty bad pushback if the book is mostly based in reality. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the voice got stronger and stronger. My agent was very, very concerned and did not like it very much. And uh, I it did end up taking out a whole chapter of 6.30. And it's so funny because that chapter, which is when 6.30 learns how to become a parent, he goes to the park and he watches mothers. And that <laughs> chapter is in the Barnes and Noble. <laughs> Barnes and Noble printed that chapter at the back. They have special extra content. And I probably get more comments on that chapter than any other chapter because it's him really talking about his confusion with language and his confusion with how people behave and how mothers in the park behave and what is parenting. It's the funniest thing. So yeah, my agent is wonderful, but she was very worried about that. And so that chapter went away and now it's sort of come back because Barnes and Noble I I did not. I got my book at Books or Magic. So unfortunately, we do not have that chapter. But this brings me to the question of like, how much say did you have when writing this book of what to keep in and what to take out? Because I do think that sometimes we just innately know best, like I'm starting to write and in the writing classes I've been in things that people want to take out. I just innately know that I do not want to take out. You have to follow your your mm-hmm. gut feel because you know what your story is. And the oh. great thing about my agent is, I mean, she is really a good agent. She has very strong beliefs and so do I. Mm. I can't imagine having an agent like, oh yeah, everything's great. Just do it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, she really pushes me. And, and uh, we were just, we were just on stage together in Dubai and it was uh, at this conference. And I'm like, can I go? To I don't know. I know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> they have a huge literary uh, conference there, but we were both on, we were never on stage together. And we get along so well. We're sort of like we're married and we go back and forth. <laughs> so with the book, she go, I don't like this. And I go, but I do. But she would reveal to me, oh, but it would be so much better if you had a little bit more of this. For instance, she said, you need more of this child. You need more of mad. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, I'll put it in. And she goes, but you got to keep it to a certain length. So she also presents the the economic view, the sure. reality of publishing. Of oh, um, so yeah, but listen to yourself. But also I like getting feedback and I like being able to say, I heard your feedback and I'm rejecting that. But I'm also glad to say, I heard your feedback and you're absolutely right. And that's right. Yeah. Well, and that's the relationship I have. I love that. I have some feedback for you, Bonnie. Okay, great. I'm going to need you to write another book. Yes, absolutely. You must. You must. <laughs> I'm not- I am working on another book. It's it's not a sequel to this book, but it's okay. It, okay. We're, oh, we we okay. will get into that at the end. Yeah, we'll get into I that, have sorry. one more 630 question and I okay. want to know if this was intentional. So the, that line and my friend texted me it this morning. So it says he was dead like 42 minutes later. Were we supposed to think that it might be the dog? So when I was writing that, I thought it's obvious that it's Calvin. And so many people said, you left us hanging. And almost nearly every single person who said this said, and I was going to not finish reading the book if it was the dog that died. (laughs) Okay. I had a fight over this. I had a different opinion. And if you, I... If it was 6.30, I might have stopped reading. I could not okay. do it with the dog done. I, I have to say, it. 
this story was so powerful because I am the same way. I typically, I would rather the human die, which sounds so awful, but in movies, like I would so much rather the human die. But this love was so magical and pure to me that I wanted it to be the dog, which I know is so awful. And I can't even believe I'm saying it, but if I had to pick one, it's like Calvin's life has already been so tragic. Elizabeth's life has been so tragic. This can't be Calvin. So I was like, I had to flip ahead. I just wanted to see who it was, but I would have rather it had been 630. I know it's controversial, but controversial. we're going to fight about this. So we die till we die. Someone out there has to feel the same ways. But I do. Think- You're the first one I've heard who who wanted who thought it would be better if the dog died. I'm gonna get canceled for hating it. I love animals. On the front page of the paper, Allegra hates dogs. Allegra wishes dogs dead. <laughs> I just wanted to show that nuance because I just found their love so pure. It was so beautiful. Totally. But I did love the way that 630 helped Elizabeth grieve Mm -hmm. and how powerful an animal can be when you're grieving. My dog has helped me through so much. We talk about it because we both have some- We're mentally ill. We're mentally ill. (laughs) We have some some mental health issues. We are sad. (laughs) We are sad. And our dogs both help us even not like outwardly, but if we have to go outside and take them out, you have to go outside. It gives you something to do. Gives you a schedule, makes you stay on it, gives Mm -hmm. you pieces, like- Dogs are the best. And speaking of dogs and mental health, how do you relate to being a sad girl, Bonnie? If you are a sad girl, maybe you're not a sad girl. Oh no, of course I'm a sad girl. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, you know, it's really interesting because I think sadness always arises from something that's not being fulfilled in some way. You know, it might be your love relationship or it might just be that you're hungry. That's happened. (laughs) Or it might be something at work that's just really eating away at you and you don't feel recognized or you don't feel appreciated. But whatever it is, something is going unfulfilled and something that you really need to have fulfilled and that you deserve to have fulfilled. So the, the question is, is usually people aren't sad about things that, they know they can go out and fix very easily. You know, these are these are big things. Loss is a really big thing to be sad about. So I think, yeah, I'm in the sad girl club. <laughs> Amazing. We're honored. What are, if you have any like self-care tips that you use to elevate your sad mood or help you cope with it? You know, this is just going to sound like one of those um, self-help books, but it, it does really help to get out of the situation you're in. So like you were saying, take your dog out for a walk, change your environment, (laughs) Um, go outside. For me, I like, I go to the gym or something, especially when I don't want to go to the gym. That's when I know I I absolutely have to go to the gym. And I usually walk in like, oh, here I am. Sad girl at the gym. gym. But I, I almost always leave feeling so much better. And, you know, I was reading something about exercise and how important it is to move everything around in your body all the time. And I thought about Elizabeth Zott actually just recently and how, you know, she took up erging and rowing and how that's something that I do. And I think how profound a change you can make if you simply move your molecules around. Chemistry. Yes. You are literally moving the anxiety and the sadness and you can release some of it. And I also think that goes to show why the pandemic 
obviously among other things was so hard for people when you couldn't leave your home. Like I just started working. So I'm a therapist and I just started seeing clients in person again for the first time in three years. And I couldn't really leave my environment when I was working from home all day. And it contributed massively to depression for me. And I feel so much better getting out. Yeah. It's, it was horrible. You know, both of my kids were living alone during the pandemic. Same honey, single girl sadness. I mean, I had my dogs. I love them, but they can't talk, you know, I'm like talking to them. I'm talking to the plants at this point. I'm like, does anyone want to speak to me? Hello, baby. (laughs) I don't know how you did that. I had my fiance. We weren't engaged yet, but if I hadn't have had someone to talk to every day, I would have gone, I went insane, but I would have gone more insane. You're, know, your daughter you're, you're missing someone touching you. And if you don't have a dog or a partner yeah. or, or a cat or something, what do you do? It's really hard. It was horrible. But okay. you know, I was lucky I had a partner. Are your daughters proud of you? Like I, I, when I read your bio and it was like, and I have two pretty amazing daughters, I was like, so is Bonnie adopting or? Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, so are you, and would you adopt me? So are your daughters proud? Are they so stoked about this? Oh, they are so proud. They're, they're hilarious. I just feel like I hit the kid jackpot. You know? <laughs> I'm literally going to cry. I know, really. I just, I did. Honestly, when they were really young, I couldn't really hang out with other moms because they go, oh, you know, little Johnny's burned the house down or whatever. And I never had anything bad to say about my kids. Wow. Oh no, they're great. Um, they're getting straight A's. You know, it's just so annoying. So I would say nothing. Um, because I just think they're both such wonderful people and they've been so supportive throughout the book uh, journey. It's been, they're so much fun. I mean, we talk every day. <laughs> Thank I... God for FaceTime. I love that so much. I, I love. That. I have a similar relationship with my mom because uh, it's just me and my mom, and we're literally like this. And I'm the only child. How yeah. old are your daughters? Oh, one is 31 now, and the other one is 29. They just have their birthdays. That's like yeah. our age. That's like us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not telling the internet how old I am, but it's close to our age. <laughs> yeah. See, no, they're. I mean, it's just. I just feel very lucky to have them in my life. I can't imagine. We all went on vacation together, you know, because we enjoy going on vacation together. Still, I keep thinking, oh, you know, that day will come where they'll say, no, I'm not going to spend Christmas with you. And I'm like, no, oh, I actually no. don't think so. I'm like, come, Christmas with Bonnie come. every year. It come, and if they're ever busy. Yeah. We, oh, okay, good. All right. <laughs> I'll threaten them with that. On Christmas, I'll come over. Just okay. Like- question. <laughs> maybe a little bit of a, an offside, but maybe not. How did raising women if they identify as women feel different for you because the way I think about it is it is unique to raise a woman in this world so how did that feel different and what did you feel like you had to do differently I guess with girls well you know I came from a family of all girls there were four Mm -hmm. of us um, and so having two girls felt a little bit easier in a way, cause you know, it's my own gender, but then, you know, they're, they're of course, whatever, whoever they are, everyone on the planet is different. You're an original. Everybody is their own original. And I think that's something that we tend to forget that for us, you know, our kids were adopted and their personalities when we met them were absolutely the same way they are today. Wow. Wow. You really see, and it's wonderful to be an adoptive parent because you don't bring too much, you know, he gets that from me, she gets that from me sort of stuff, but you do get a chance to see this human being unfold 
in front of you. And it's just, oh, it's just the best experience for us. But then again, I think we did get the best kids. So that could be an issue (laughs) for other people. Sounds like you did. Yeah. You you, hit the jackpot. We did. We, we did. We hit the kid jackpot. So Elizabeth parent, like you parents, like, did you see, (laughs) did you see yourself and Elizabeth? Oh, the The lunch notes. notes. Are you kidding me? That is epic. And also just teaching Matt about the world. Like I loved that note that was like, most people suck and don't let them. Did you have to do that with your daughters? Like, did you teach them about sexism? How did that work for you? Yeah, I did. Actually, it was really important to me to do that. I wanted them to not go into life thinking it was going to be fair because it's not fair, Uh, but I did want them to know that, you know, you have to be able to laugh at things. You have to find the good in things. Um, I did leave them notes in their lunch boxes. They just threw I mean, I, my, my mom like, left me notes, but they were like, love you. Very sweet. Yeah. Very sweet. Well, that's sort of what I did. I, you know, I thought with Elizabeth thought it would be really funny to have her put in these things that she knew Mad was experienced at school, you know, bullying or whatever, and just have her put her opinion, even in the lunchbox of what to watch out for. Here are the pitfalls that are coming your way. I didn't do that with my kids, but it was really fun to write that part of her as a mother, because my idea with that whole character of Mad was what would a child look like if she'd been raised without limits? If her mother said, yes, you can read that, you you know, stick your finger in the light socket, you'll figure it out. What would it look like? And so, of course, she had help. She had Harriet and she had 630 helping. (laughs) But Elizabeth herself was a fountain of encouragement to her daughter. She never underestimated her. She never said, you're too young to do that. No, she and was Matt reading was, at like four. And oh Matt my was goodness. brilliant. I so loved her. She's very tenacious. Yeah. Like she, yeah. she wasn't scared of anything. And I was, I was very envious of that. Wow. What do you think Elizabeth would think about gender inequality today? And what do you think about it today? You know, I was saying to someone else, Elizabeth Zott would be glad to know that 30% of the SIM jobs are held by women. On the other hand, she would be devastated to know that only 30% of the SIM jobs are held by women. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, she would see where we are and she'd be disappointed. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the question is, why are we still here? Why did Roe versus Wade, you know, what, I'm sorry, but that... (laughs) No, don't be sorry. It's It's, huge. It's it's just, it's just, it's really interesting because the book is published in so many countries. I hear from women all over the world and I hear from women in countries where there's a lot of repression, Mm. you know, much more than in the United States, which seems very repressive. Even they were shocked by, by that decision. Even they said, oh my gosh, you know, if that can happen there, that can happen anywhere. And I think it's a call to arms. You know, we have to be stronger and louder than ever, because I think women tend to sit back a little bit and we're still raised to be nice. We don't have to be unnice or unkind. We just have to be firm. And I think the problem with what's happening in the United States isn't so much that people are so divisive. It's that, this is my personal opinion, a lack of scientific education mm-hmm. that would teach children at an early age that there is no such thing as gender. There is no such thing as race. Mm -hmm. There is no, there's, there are no differences in capabilities between men, women, or anybody else. And that a lot of our problems would go away if we actually had a very good science curriculum (laughs) in schools from an early age. A lot of the problems we see in the United States are born out of ignorance. 
people believe what they want to believe because they've read it somewhere. And misinformation is the name of the game now. Yeah. So if children were raised to read science and they can understand chemistry at an early age, that would really change because I think change things because I think if we actually as humans were ruled and we are ruled by the laws of chemistry, if we actually applied those same laws to us as human beings, to our society, things would be very different because chemistry is about balance and we are very unbalanced. So if you could be president, <laughs> which we're praying for. Yeah. How do you think we can get to the world that we all want to see? With well, the- that's a big question. Yeah, so if you big. can't, answer if you can't that. fix it now, Bonnie, well then, you know yeah, what? We- no, I've got it. I've got it. No, <laughs> I just, I just, we tend to judge people uh, visually, and that's that's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Within the book, I don't give visual descriptions of people except very brief ones. And my editors really, really wanted me to add visual description to people. So there's our first hurdle. But what I really think is that our solution lies in far better education. There are countries out there that are doing a lot better than we are yeah. education wise. Their populace is far less ignorant, far less willing to believe things that, that seem outrageous. And because of it, they're doing a lot better, but their, their citizens are also stronger. You know, and I was reading in, well, Finland has one of the best educational systems in the world. Um, They also have the lowest divorce rate. And one of the reasons is that men and women have equal responsibility for their child. There isn't an assumption that the woman stays at home and the man doesn't. We talked about this and how ridiculous it is. Like some of my clients will say, like, if I have, let's say a female client and she like goes out to dinner with her friends, her friends will say, oh, it's so, it's so awesome that your husband's babysitting tonight. He's not babysitting. It's called (laughs) parenting. It's called, he is a father. But now we still look at it as like, oh, we took the kids. He's babysitting all weekend. No, he's the literal father. He's just parenting. Exactly. It's his responsibility too. And, you know, I'm sure that Finland has problems. I'm sure they're unhappy couples, but I think, you know, what I understand is that there's just a general feeling of if you're a parent, the woman isn't automatically doing all of this. Mm-hmm. The man is too. It's 50% you. And they give you an enormous amount of time off when you have a child, but the man also stays home. Wow. So I think, I think, you know, they, they seem to be on to something there in Finland and then their educational system is, you know, interesting. I mean, they don't give homework apparently. Yeah. I'm like, where was Finland yeah. when I was Let's a child? <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah. Can I get out of math? Yeah. So I, I think, I don't know. There are countries that are doing things better than we're doing things. And it would be interesting for us to be a little open-minded and take a look at how other countries are dealing with the same problems that we face. Absolutely. I kind of feel like people are not talking like, like we all know there's a problem with inequality with women and we all know, and it like, it happened a long time ago, but I feel like no one talks about it. And they're like, that was just, that was a while ago. And this book is making people talk about it and like, Oh wait, that was a billion years ago. And it's, and it's right still now. Happening. Oh my God. That happened to me at work today. today. Right. Exactly. See, I think that that it's so interesting to me. Somebody, a male reader said, well, at least there's no sexism today. And I said, (gasps) okay, so literally. Yeah. I mean, I just, I thought, okay, so let me explain this to you. Actually, no, 
Is that your daughter sitting next to you? Ask her. I actually was in a in a room filled Thank with you. people and I, the moderator who was really nice, he said, well, have you run into any sexism like, you know, lately? And I went, could I just ask the room? Every hand went up. Every so, single hand went up. I don't know if it's <laughs> ignorance. I don't know if it's that men just presume that it's not still happening. I think also one of the problems- believe they're doing. Yes, well, and we talked about it in the episode. I think people have a a misconception about feminism, that feminism means that now women are greater. No, feminism literally means equality Mm -hmm. for all. Mm -hmm. And I think people think, well, now that this whole feminism thing is happening, women are supposed to be greater and there isn't sexism anymore. And that's not it. Like feminism is not a bad word. It's not a dirty word. It Mm -hmm. literally means equality for all. And right. I can't even believe this man would say that. Like, have no, you it was just, it was shock. You know, it's it wasn't shocking though, right? Because we run into it every day. And I think, you know, he also went on to say, "Well, there was the Me Too movement, so now there's no, you know, sexual assault." Are you? Oh, it kidding? got fixed. I was unaware it got fixed. Thank you, sir. <laughs> I appreciate that. It's yeah, all but, no assault. You know, let me pull all the rape kits out of the local hospital. They don't need to use them anymore. Right. Um, so yeah, there. But I think for some men, they they they're not trying to be provocative when they say these things, but they literally just don't see it. I mean, partly it was the way this man was raised, I'm sure. But I, I think mostly they, they just don't see it. I, I'm lucky enough to be married to a feminist. I'm lucky enough to Everyone have a lot of <laughs> male feminist friends. And that's why the book has a few total dirt bags, but it also has some really good men because I know a lot of good men. Mm-hmm. What we need is for these good men to always say something because they're going to have the biggest influence on other men. Mm -hmm. And that is something that was so profound to me. And what, I mean, it makes sense given the time, but what upset me was how I think it was Walter knew that this producer was doing Uh, terrible things and said, don't go into his office, but didn't do anything further. And that is him being complicit in some sense. Obviously it's not his fault, but how many times does that happen where a male knows that his colleague is sexually assaulting or harassing someone and just doesn't say anything? They just want to stay out of it or like, keep cool or not get into the drop. No, no, it's your job to say something because men aren't going to listen to us. So that's right. And I think, you know, I was saying to this gentleman that he was saying, well, you know, statistics show that, you know, sexual assault is way down. And I said, sexual oh. assault is not reported. It, thank yeah. you. Thank because you. Because no one listens if we do, yeah. if we do report it. Yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a source of shame and embarrassment, but it's also, you know, you're not going to be believed. Yeah. So for these women, what is the point of, mm-hmm. of going through the whole thing and making yourself even more vulnerable or whatever? But I think, you know, so he was, he, I have to say he was the outlier in one of my, one of my talks. Most men that I've heard from are, Thank God, because, you know, I feel this way too, but I don't stand up. I don't stand up when I should. Mm -hmm. And I've never really thought about how often I don't say something. It's hard. This book is hard. It's really hard. Yeah. I I know all the sad girls out there are reading this, but I also want like men to read it too, because I feel like they'll get an insight though, like a small little oh, y'all are going through that. Okay, maybe I should say something because the scenes are so cringy. Like the way that I feel nauseous thinking about- So nauseous. Like- But it's real it's and that's so what's real, so but it's, awful. It's foul. It's so awful. I mean, the good news is the school. the book has been adopted into some school curriculums. I'm most proud that it's been adopted into boys' schools. <gasps> because- oh. 
And I love this about these these deans who say, no, you know, we have we have a responsibility to teach them about sexism and what it looks like. And this is written, this is historic and yet a historical novel, and yet it's still true today. And I've gotten these great <laughs> direct messages from you know, these kids, these 14 year old boys saying, wow, I loved your book much better than Lord of the Flies, which we read <laughs> last time. But they also are sort of like a one kid wrote and told me that he and his friends had a discussion at lunch about what they could do to help girls at the girls school Aww. to be You're changing the world. You are changing the world. No, I, just, I just, I just loved it. I mean, I just thought, but they're the ones, you know, he's, um, this note was one of my favorites. You know, he was just emphatic about it. it's so obvious that it's wrong. And now I can see how how it gets, you know, passed on from generation to generation. About the book, too, is that it was so like it was so blatant, but I think it needs to be that obvious to spell it out. Yeah. Like this yeah. is what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this yeah. is not drama. This is not yeah. like a, a dramatization of it. This is what actually happened. For the past yeah. billion years and it's still happening. And I love like little 14 year old boys reading it because those are the people that we need to get That's to the brains. next generation that yeah, will hopefully we, yeah. make changes. Yeah. That's what I think too. So I'm hopeful, you know, a lot of, a lot of schools, high schools in the United States have contacted us and want to adopt it into the curriculums, but also some universities are talking about having it be a read that their freshmen have to read coming in. Because wow. I think, you know, it does, it does present it, you know, luckily the book has humor in it. So there's a lot of darkness. Yeah. If you want to get across to people, you, you can't really be didactic. You you have to introduce something else. So that was my way of trying to bridge that gap of here's the really terrible life that a lot of women on earth have right now be part of the solution here. I love the humor too. And we both use humor so much humor. as sad girls to get through the sad, right. times. sad times. And I love the balance of humor and depth in the book. It was perfect. Thank you. Perfect. What is next for you? Well, this is a two part question. We know that the television series is coming out. Were you shocked? Were you excited? How, how much? Yeah. How did you have a role in that? Were you on set? Oh my gosh. I was supposed to be on set, but when I landed in LA, I tested positive for COVID oh to get there though. I had to test the day before I flew and I was negative. So we're not really sure if I actually had COVID because when I came back, I tested negative again and it just could have been, a you know, false yeah. positive, but that's not, that's kind of rare. But then again, I don't know. I just didn't. So I was unlucky, but it's all wrapped and now it's in editing and it will be out in October. I did not write the script. So the, the yeah. script was written by a couple people and I got to write notes and, you know, it's up to them whether or not they took my suggestions. They have to change things. And so in a way, it's really good for me not to be working on it because a writer has to sort of give away their child and hope someone will raise it carefully. And they have to go in and reorder things, change things, add new characters, you know, flush out this cast. And so some of it, I was like, I don't know if, you know, this, this would work, but I got to say so which is lucky because wow. I know what writers do. I I really love everybody that I've come in contact with. Brie Larson is amazing. And I think she'll just be great as Elizabeth Zott. Yeah. Fantastic. Great casting. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. So we have the show. What is next in terms of writing? Can you tell us about that? 
Well, I tell you about the book I'm writing, but since I don't write from an outline, so if I tell you everything I say will be a lie because in three months, I'll just change the whole thing or I'll shift it. And so, yeah, I won't even tell you what I'm working on, but I'm working away. I like, I like this new story. Amazing. And where do you like to write? Where's your favorite place to get the best writing out? Well, I live in a, a pretty small flat in London. And so my husband and I share a work table, which is also our dining room table. Amazing. And uh, we work three feet apart. And we started doing that, of course, during COVID. Mm-hmm. And he didn't know that when I work, I read out loud all the time. So that was... Uh, he was like, Bonnie, he's like, <laughs> stop what's it. going on? Stop it. My um, fiance does that and I cannot, I can't, no. I, I'm like, please, please stop. So he wears headphones Smart. at the table. And that way I can do my work and he can do his work. And then we'll go for a walk and then we'll finally talk about our day, even though we've been sitting next to each other mm-hmm. all day. It's like a coffee shop. Wait, that's goals. No, we're we're lucky. But anyway, yeah, so that's how I work. I work best in the morning and I just plug on. But I'm about to come on tour in the United States and I'm coming to New York. I'm coming to Scarsdale. We're Um, there. I shot in Scarsdale. That's a really Yeah, we did we shot on location there for the a series I was in. What which series was it was an NBC show called Rise. Oh, like, wow. Yeah. But why oh, Scarsdale? That's I don't know. There's a Barnes and Noble there. Okay. And they wanted, they, they made the book, book of the year. And uh, this for past December, it was their book of the year, which was great. And so they have this store in Scarsdale. They really wanted me to come and, and talk. So I'm there, but most I'm going on a tour of the United States and then I'm doing a second one in May. So I'm sure I'll be back to New York. Okay. Yeah. We're coming. We're there. Is there anything that you want the listeners to know that you haven't already said? No. You said a lot. Yeah. You said profound things. You said all the things that I, that needed to be said. Oh, well, you know, I always say to, to young women, I always say, don't forget to use the word no. It's the most important word in the English language. You can say no. You don't have to shout or anything. You just have to stand firm. I love that. That is brilliant. It's amazing. <laughs> just say no. Oh, thank you, Thank Bonnie. you so much, Bonnie. This You're was so brilliant. Well, thank you for inviting me. I was so excited. I have to tell you, really, I really was, so... Thank you very much. We're so honored. It. We're honored. You're our first book. Everyone's like losing their mind. Yeah. Sad girls are yeah. coming out of the They're woodwork. So. Read this book. I can't. Sad girls unite. Yeah. Yeah. We get we get shit done. Yes, we, we do. do get shit done, Bonnie. Yes, we yes. do. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. It was Absolutely. great to meet both of you. Nice to meet you. Bye. Bye, Sad Girls. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and subscribe and follow our show. It's the way that we can get the word out about our Sad Girl podcast and more Sad Girls can find their community. And if you'd like to follow us on other platforms, we're on Instagram at Sad Girls Who Read and TikTok at Sad Girls Good Books. We love you, Sad Girls. <laughs>